Thanks for having us, guys. It's really good to be here uh, with you here in Bagara. Uh, the great green philosopher Shrek once said, life's all about layers. And uh, John's gospel, if you've read John before, uh, John was the first gospel I read as a, as a believer. And it is a book of layers, isn't it? The first time we read it, uh, we see it on one level. And the more times we read it, uh, we see it on deeper levels or deeper layers. And so it's my prayer for us this morning, uh, sorry, this evening, that we will see John on a, on a deeper level. Maybe you'll hopefully see God in a new way. Well, why don't I pray and we'll get stuck into it. Uh, Heavenly Father, we come before you this evening with great thanksgiving that we are your people uh, and that we are here to be ministered to you, to hear from you. Uh, be at work in our hearts. Remove uh, our, st- uh, our heart of stone. Bring down those walls of unbelief, Lord, but allow us to hear from you this, mo- uh, this evening. And may we gaze upon your beauty in a new way. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, for many years, as a child, people would ask me, do you believe in God? And I would always say, yeah, I believe in God, but I'm not going to really follow him. I mean, he's all the way up there in heaven and I'm down here. Why? How could you follow someone who is absent from you? He's up here. He's not in my world. He's not in my life. He doesn't understand me. He can't help me with my life in the here and now. He's too busy up in the sky ruling the world. How could he care about someone as insignificant as me? I wonder if you've ever entertained those thoughts that God is somehow absent or too big for you, too far away to care about you. I wonder if you've ever entertained those thoughts. Friends, I think this is one of the ways that the secular world views God and religion. When we look at other religions, it's the same premise. God is up there and I'm, well, down here. Sure, I'd love to be with God and to dwell with him, but I can't. Because, well, I'm human and he's God. Other religions are the same. Islam, Allah is someone you pray to, someone you devote yourself to, pay homage to, but is he someone you can relate to? I can worship him because of his deity. And in Islam, I can worship who he is, but I can't relate to him. Therefore, in Islam, I can never actually dwell with God. I can never ever be in his presence. In the Hindu religion, its souls are all immortal or eternal, whether you believe in Hindu or not. But your work and effort and worship will determine what you come back as when you're reincarnated. But the same, same premise is there. There's no actual God that you can relate with or that can relate to you. God is out there somewhere, maybe conceptual. Buddhists, it's the same thing. Buddhists don't even believe in God. And although they respect and look up to Buddha, they don't believe Uh, that he was a god, but they worship him in some form or respect. Now, they show devotion to Buddha and reverence, but for Buddhists, it's about achieving knowledge through enlightenment, but at no point can they actually relate to Buddha, nor can Buddha relate to man. 
But what the Bible teaches, the Bible teaches that all humans have a deep longing, a longing for relationship, a longing to relate to God, a longing to dwell with God. I mean, if God was able to dwell with you, if God knew your every thought, your every desire, your every pain, your every worry, how would that change your attitude towards him? Would you believe in him? Would you follow him? And that's the big question the prologue of John begins with and asks. Who is God? Who is God? That's what God wants us to know. Who is he? There's three things that we're going to look at today that's going to take us through the text. One, who is God? Two, what on earth does he want from me? And three, why should I respond? Let's look at the first three. Who is this God? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. The first three verses. Who is this Word? What is the Word? In Jewish terms, the Word is simply, it's simply truth and knowledge. It's the logos in Greek. The Word of God. And what we know of the Word is that the Word has existed before all time, before creation. In the beginning was the Word. There was never a time that the Word did not exist. And because the Word is in the Greek imperfect tense, it means that God was continuing. In the beginning was continuing the Word. And the Word was continuing with God. And the Word was continually God. The Word is pre-existent. He always was continuing. Paul tells us, in Colossians 1.17, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. You see, it picks up this idea that the, world, that the word existed before the world was created. You can actually see it in Genesis 1 in the Hebrew. In English, we read it, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's our common English reading. But in the Hebrew, it reads like this. At the time of creating... God made the heavens and earth. Now, for us as modern readers, we imply that creation, the creation of the world was the beginning of time. But when you put John 1.1 and Genesis 1.1 together in its original language, you see that the word existed before time, before the time of our creating this universe. He always was continually. The word was not among the created things. John's point in the beginning, before creation, before the beginning of time, the word was. Next, the apostle adds, the word was with God, or literally, the word was continually toward God. The father and the word were continually face to face. It bears the idea of nearness, along with the sense of a movement towards God. That's to say, there's always been... What's always existed has been the the deepest equality and intimacy of the Holy Trinity. Before time, in eternity, both forwards and backwards, the Godhead has always had relationship and related to each other in a perfect intimacy. But moreover, the final phrase here, and the word was God. The exact meaning is that the word was God in essence and character. He was God in every way, though he was was a separate person from God the Father. The phrase perfectly preserves uh, the word separate identity, whilst whilst also stating 
that he is God. This was his continuing identity for all eternity. He was God constantly. Now, this simple sentence here that we've looked at, which has taken me five minutes to unpack, is the most compact and pulsating theological statement in all of Scripture. In all of Scripture. The Word was always existing from all eternity as God, in perfect fellowship with God, the Father, and though not mentioned, the Holy Spirit as well. But as we get to the end of these first three verses, the Word is the creator of the universe. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. The fact of the Word's creatorship is consistent not just here in this, but in, in John 1, but also through the entire New Testament. Colossians 1, 16, 17. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. Or Revelation 4.11, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Now, in our, in our society today, in our world today, I think maybe forever, when I think about it, there has always been a pushback against authority. And I'm not talking about an individual authority, but more an abstract concept of authority. For example, who has the right and the authority to tell you what to do? Who has the right to tell me what to do? How many times have we heard that before? Who has the right or authority over my life? Maybe that's a statement you've made once or maybe definitely heard in our society today. Who do you think you are that you can tell me what to do? You know, that is a brilliant question. That is a brilliant, brilliant question. Who does have the right and the authority to rule your life? Well, John 1, 1 to 3 wants to tell us that before time, there was the Word who was and is God and He is the creator of all things. His power and authority is beyond measure. His power and authority is ultimate. It's unmatched. It's unrivaled. It's the highest possible authority imaginable because everything that is, he made. And you know, in life, I think all of us have lived enough to know that people let us down all the time. People fail. Uh, we, fail we fail ourselves. We fail those around us. And people are hard to put their trust in when we look at authority. Whether it's those above us in in government, whether it's those above us uh, in employment or in any other relationship status, because of the sinfulness of man, it is hard to trust others above us in authority. But here in the prologue of John, the word shows us that he has the ultimate authority and is someone we can and should put our trust in. Who has the right and authority to rule your life? The word does, because he is God. Now, a question that we then obviously have to come to is that if he is God, then what on earth does he want from me? That's our second point this morning. What does he want from me? 
And in verse 4 to 5, John develops this relationship of the Word and God and ties it further to creation. From verse 4, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Again, so reminiscent of Genesis 1, just as God gave light and life in the beginning of creation, so too the Word will bring light and life. In fact, it's only because of the Word that we have life. It's only because of the Word that we have light. It is the life giver. Our life is dependent on the Word. The Word is the life giver. He is the light bearer. And that light is meant to be a beacon, something to see, something to behold, something to grasp, something to be drawn to. The light is the way that God wants to reveal himself to you. It's a picture of God saying, do you want to know who I am? Do you want to know what I'm about? Do you want to know what I want? Well, then here I am as the word. And so John now gives another idea of creation, the idea of the reality of light and darkness. If the light is life, then darkness is death. If light is good, then darkness is evil. And the first thing that John tells us is that the word has come into the world. It's come into the darkness, the world. It's come into our evil, sinful planet, the one that we live on. But not just that it's, he's come into it, but that he's overcome it. He's overcome darkness, overcome evil, and overcome death. Now, friends, if there is a purpose statement in all of John, then here it is here, right in verse 6. If this is all you get today from this, from this sermon, then please hear this bit. Why does God want us to know the power of the word, to know the authority of the word? Verse 6 tells us, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not of the light, but came to bear witness about the light that all might believe in him. Friends, that's why John goes to great lengths to show the majesty and authority of the word. Because he wants us, he wants you to believe in him. That's what God wants. He wants you to believe and to trust in the word. But this is the great tragedy, isn't it? Despite God showing his power and majesty, despite the word, the logos, coming into the world, the world has rejected him he reiterates reiterates it in verse 9 the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world he was in the world and the world was made through him yet the world didn't know him he came to his own and his own people did not receive him but to all who did not receive him who believed in his name he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man but of God it is a great tragedy, isn't it? It's a great tragedy because here is God, like a beacon of light, screaming out at all of us, going, here I am. I am the source of all life. I am the one that has fashioned this universe. I am the life giver, and I am here to give you life. And yet because of the darkness of the world, because of spiritual blindness, the world cannot see him nor understand him. They reject him. Because if you could only see him, if we could only see who he is, believe in him and 
We would be his child. We would receive life from the life giver. Friends, these verses scream out at us from heaven. Are you someone that's going to reject God, reject the light, reject the maker of the universe, stay in the darkness and die an eternal death? Or are you someone that's going to believe, believe in the God, the maker of all things? Are you going to trust in him with your whole life so that you might have life? Are you going to come into the light? That's the choice. That's the choice John 1 gives us. It's yours. Wherever you are in life, however old you are, however long you've been a Christian, whatever background you're from, that's the question. Are you going to believe and have life? The greatest irony and tragedy is that the very medicine that can cure the human condition is rejected. Verse 19, people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. You see, the world only wants to accept God on their own terms. It's only if the gospel affirms the systems of the world, upholding and inflating personal freedom, in inflating the magnificence of human progress, worshipping the created things rather than the creator. And if the gospel calls out the darkness for what it is, calls out sin for what it is, if it identifies unbelief in all of its sophisticated ways, well, then the word will be met with antagonism. If the creator of the world now calls for allegiance from people as the creator Lord, then the world doesn't want a part of it. And friends, at the heart of that is what we would call a total depravity. That is that people are, as a result of the fall, not inclined or even able to love God wholly with their heart, mind and strength, but rather are inclined by nature to serve their own will and desires and reject his rule. And therefore, because of this, humans need to be reborn. They need to find new life. And the only way that we can be reborn, the only way that we can actually find life is through the life giver, the word. Are we someone, are we a people that's going to accept God on our own terms? Or are we going to surrender our whole lives to the word and allow him to be the Lord of our life? Maybe you're still sceptical. Maybe you're not convinced. Maybe you're someone here today who's thinking, well, why would I commit my life? Why would I surrender my life to a word, to a, to a concept A concept of God is no different to any other religion. And guess what, friend? If that's your take on on this, then, then you're right. You're absolutely right. If the word is just a concept, then how is it any different? How can God actually relate to me? How can I relate to him? If God wants me to, to believe in him, well, why? It might change my eternal destination, but what does that actually mean now? And that leads us to the third point this morning, our final point. Why should, I, why should I respond to God? Let's look at verse 14 to 18. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen his glory. The glory is the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This is he of whom I said, 
He who comes after me ranks before me because he was booked before me. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one's ever seen God, only God who is at the Father's side. He has made his known. Friend, friends, the word is not a concept. The word is not a concept. It is a person and his name is Jesus Christ. And he has been around eternally from the beginning of time. He has always had relationship with God, the Father as the Son, but he himself is God. He is the God-man. He is the incarnate man, God in the flesh. And what has he come to do? He's come here to dwell with you. Friends, this is the biggest news ever. Since the time of the fall when Adam and Eve first sinned, humanity has been unable to dwell with God. We're so, we were removed from the garden, removed from God's presence because of our sin. The word dwelt, it actually just means, uh, it actually just means pitched his tent or it means tabernacled. For God to dwell with us is for God to pitch his tent with us. It's for him to tabernacle with us. And these verses here in John 1 come straight from the Exodus. It comes where the tabernacle was built. Exodus 40. God's presence is the tabernacle. It's the place where God is present is in his glory. The glory of God filled the tabernacle. Moses can't go into the tabernacle, can't go into his presence because of his glory. He'd be killed by it. But Jesus, well, Jesus is a Moses type. He can go into the presence of God. He can tabernacle with God because he is God himself. But he's also God in the flesh. And so through the word coming to dwell with us, to dwell with you, you can enter into his presence because of Jesus. But the question remains, how? How? How can I be in the presence of God? How can I have him dwell with me if I am a sinner? And friends, that is a great question. And the answer of that, the root of that, comes in the the Exodus as well. How can I be acceptable before God? How can I be acceptable before a holy God when I am a sinner? I mean, this is the beauty of Exodus. Exodus 24 to 31, um, just to recap what's happened in the story before we get to the point... Moses goes up to the mountain with God. He's in his presence. They put the Ten Commandments together. Then in Exodus 32, the people rebel. God wants to wipe them off the face of the earth. Moses pleads to God, remember your promises, God, with the people. And so Moses pleads, don't kill us, but don't kill us because of our sin. And so God says, all right, I won't kill them, but now God can't dwell with them because of their sin. We see it in Exodus 32, 34. He says, but now go, lead the people to the place about where I've spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. The angels have got to go before him because God himself can't. God himself can't be present with them. You also see it when they're wandering around in the desert. God can't dwell in the camp. He's got to go before them in the, cl- in the cloud. I mean, what a harsh 40-year reminder, what a harsh 40-year gut-wrenching reminder that this God that is in front of us, well, we can't be with him, we can't dwell with him because of our sin. But here's the clincher. 
He's the clincher, what Moses tells us in 34.9. If now I've found favour in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, because it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for an inheritance. Friends, this beautiful verse that finds its root in Exodus It does two things. It tells us that for us to dwell with God, we need our sins forgiven. And Moses isn't asking forgiveness because we're such awesome people. He actually says, no, it's because we're sinful people, because we're stiff-necked people. We need you with us and we need our sins forgiven. And so what does God do? God builds the tabernacle. It's perfectly built. The glory cloud comes down and fills the holy and holies. Friends, this is climactic when Christ says in the New Testament, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up. Christ refers to his own body as the greater tabernacle, the true tabernacle. John 1.14 says, and the word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Friends, Jesus, the one, as Jesus is the one who has come, He has come in his glory, demonstrating his glorious act, dying on the cross and suffering for you and I, paying the penalty for our sins for humanity. He is the God-man. He makes us able to dwell with him because of his glorious act of dying on the cross, paving the way for our sins to be forgiven. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, we have received grace upon grace. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one's ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Up until Christ, no one ever really has seen God. No one could relate to him. No one could dwell with him. But now Jesus has made him known because he has come to dwell with us as the God-man. You know what's interesting? It's interesting over the last few months, maybe years, I don't know about you, but what I've noticed of what has evolved in people's minds or what the secular world acknowledges is that we are destroying this planet and more so there is something wrong with us as human consumers that we are destroying ourselves there is something in this world and there is something that is terribly wrong with us that needs fixing the world in this is looking for a diagnosis of its condition and the possibilities of renewal how do we make this world a better place In our societies, there's many voices that provide messages of promise to alleviate the struggles that we all face in life. We hear it politically and economically. Voices arguing that if we change or restructure, then we'll build this kind of utopian world where charity and wealth will win the day. But the problem is when we look around, the wealthier just get wealth, the wealthy get wealthier and the poor become poorer. But other voices will say, no, it's more of a personal problem. It's not a sociological problem, but it's a human one. The human soul is in need of repair or renewal. And so as long as we provide the right education, the right therapy or the right environment, then all will be okay in the world. This is media, social media, has been for a long time. 
But friends, these voices are nothing compared to the voice that John gives us in this passage. Friends, the prologue of John isn't a message of some kind of hope. It's the message that is the only hope. The prologue of John, Jesus Christ, is the only hope. And it's not about an idea or a concept, it's about a person. The word became flesh means that God doesn't want to just reveal good concepts to you, but he wants to reveal himself through his son. And furthermore, the message isn't just about a guy who was a carpenter or a great human model to follow, but that Jesus was and is God himself taking on the clothing of humanity embracing it fully, walking through it eternally, speaking through it and delivering it to a world in a way that's never been done before. The prologue tells us that something definitively happened concretely in time, in history. And humanity is called to respond to that event. We're all called to respond to that event. The nature of Jesus and his, this relationship to the Father. Jesus isn't just one of many saviours. He is God in flesh. Or as the Nicene Creed puts it, Christ and the Father share the same existence. He is pre-existent. In our world, that is scandalous. It's folly. The truth and, the truth and validity of this claim push, pushes back against all modern claims which validate other religious and philosophical systems. But more than that, the word that becomes flesh changes how the world views reality. Today, Western society, we've pushed God so far away that we're now unable to see a world ruled by God. Society has dismissed God's reign altogether, outwardly replacing it with the authority of science and inwardly replacing it with the authority of psychology. But friends, we mustn't go on the defence. Our world would argue that history moves with the forces of social change, that the cosmos is merely cause and effect. But John 1 shows us that God is the architect of all creation. He is the architect of all history, who delights in making himself known to you and me, entering our world through through his word, through his work, showing his power and glory. He shows himself at creation and he shows himself in the incarnate son. And all humans must now respond that we might see him. Friends, have you seen him today? Have you seen God in his word today in a different way? Have you seen him in creation when you walk out this door? Do you want to see him? Because he wants you to see him. He wants you to know who he is. He, he wants you to believe in him to have eternal life. He wants you to receive forgiveness so that he can dwell with you, in you, in fact, forever. Do you want to see him? Then look to Jesus Christ, the God-man who reveals to us who God is. Believe in him, surrender your life to him, allow him to be the Lord of your life, that you might have life. Friends, brothers, sisters, would you pray with me that as we consider who God is, 
Let us consider what he wants for us and let us consider how we are meant to respond. Let me pray. Lord God, we thank you that you are the architect of all history. By you, everything is made. And our our human minds are so small, we can't even comprehend that. But when we consider your bigness and your greatness, Lord, we consider your authority and power, when we get a, a glimpse of who you are, we can only stand back in awe and wonder and, and just be just, just captivated by your awesomeness. And then when we, we see that awesomeness and then we, we translate that, that, then you've come down into the sun and made yourself known that you'd want to be a part of our lives. Father, may we gaze upon your beauty when we we consider what Jesus has done, revealing who you are, revealing your love for us on the cross. May we gaze upon your beauty as we've received that grace upon grace. May we be melted by that to receive you, to consider you, to give our lives to you. Father, we thank you that you have a desire that we might not not just follow you, but that we might believe in you and have life. Father, we pray for that this morning. Rip down those those walls of hard-heartedness, Lord. Remove that, our hearts of unbelief. And may we be penetrated by the gospel this, this afternoon. Do a work in us, Lord, by your spirit, through your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.